Big war erupted. Start by the corrupt, 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 by the corrupt. And it's a war, ideological war, and it's a global war, technological war. Hey, Miss, I fly into the sky. Wow, that started from my life. They teach them not tell the truth. Them ones on your record. Ten dozen fighter jets. Eight dozen warships. Still can't stop them from going down in a day. Wow, quick. Wow. Ideological war. Yeah. And it's a chemical war. And it's a global war. Yeah. Wow. See the now. Another man country, country. A wicked art Cruel art You have no mercy But the bitch shall slew Goliath Even in the 21st century So Chadan, just so just Chadan Confirm your victory Wow Ideological war Yeah And it's a chemical war It's a biblical war And it's a global
Funky Revolutions, Funky. Funky Revolutions, Funky. Hey, hey, hey. Funky Revolutions, Funky. Hey, hey, hey. Funky Revolutions, Funky. You are listening to Funky Revolutions. We see the way. Ghetto music. We think of Joe Higgs as the first trench down artist. Music originated from the confrontation of the struggle. So the roots really is from a matter of struggle. That's where it's from. It's not even good to be known that you are from trench down. This is the kind of strength that you have to really accumulate. Reggae is a confrontation of sound, man. Reggae has to have that basic, vibrant sound, which is to be heard in a, in a ghetto. It's like playing the bass very loud on <laughs> the drum. You know, those are the basic sounds. A classical reggae should be accepted in, in a part of the world in the same sense. Freedom. That's what it's asking for. Acceptance. That's what it needs. An understanding. You know. What reggae is saying.
I am the upsetter from Lee Scratch Perry. Song and written by Perry. It was one of the last songs he would do with Joe Gibbs, the producer, even at a time where he had begun to struck out on his own after a series of uh, collaborations and an evolution in the musical culture of Jamaica starting in 1960 when he arrived in Kingston. Before that, we heard on Funky Revolutions, Joe Higgs speaking about the essence of reggae music and echoing some of the words uh, that from Lee Perry and ideas of Lee Perry we heard at the beginning of our homage a couple of weeks ago. This is part two, the early years of Lee Scratch Perry, as we begin looking at uh, first his evolution, uh, his introduction into the musical circles of Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, his own work as, an att- as, as he attempted to uh, become a singer before becoming a producer in the late 60s. I'm indebted, among other things, to the authorized biography by David Katz, People Funny Boy, the genius of Lee Scratch Perry, and featured uh, again today in our series a conversation with Montreal's own Mossman, longtime collaborator on Funky Revolutions, as we look at kind of that beginning period and a a short history of the career of Lee Scratch Perry to set us up in the next few weeks into the golden years of the 1970s before he would burn down the Black Ark Studios in 1979. We start with the ups, uh, I am the upsetter, that double-edged philosophy he described a couple of weeks ago. And uh, really an upsetting man in terms of upsetting customs, upsetting collaborators, but really contributing to uh, the evolution of of reggae music. And some of his songs, like People Funny Boy, are credited with being some of the first really transition period from rock steady to reggae music, that early sound, as he was then also collaborating, for example, with the Wailers, uh, helping them develop their sound that would launch them in the early 70s to international fame. He was born in Kendall, Jamaica, a small village to a very poor family who uh, were cane cutters. And uh, he was set on not uh, living that life, would leave school around 14, 15 years old and concentrate first on uh, trying to make money as a domino champion player. And then uh, one of the things he was really known for was his dance and his ability to do a number of really crazy dances. And he would uh, travel around Clarendon, uh, two championships, and uh, begin really making a name for himself in that sense. And it was that that also helped him attract attention to himself uh, and uh, the way he was integrated into sound systems when he would arrive in Jamaica. A turning point for him would be in the late 50s, uh, having uh, looked at how people drove tractors. When Negril was being opened up as a tourist attraction, he would uh, uh, get a job working as a heavy machinery uh, road builder, uh, even though he didn't have the qualifications. And he would describe that period as being fundamental to his understanding of sound as he heard the explosions and crackling of rocks. And within those stones some of the sounds and rock sounds that would influence his approach to music. 
and within it he describes in his uh, in the biography and in a couple of interviews how that was uh, that natural sound would influence him and call him and push him among other things to go to Kingston to try and find a, a career in the music business his work uh, really f- it can be punctuated in in three times with the important sound systems of the day as he began to collaborate and to hang around these sound systems that were uh, kind of the second, if not the third generation of the sound systems and marked the transition from these sound systems playing American records, soul, rhythm and blues, jazz, basically, you know, outdoor parties uh, to bring people together. I'm talking first about uh, Duke Reed, who had through his uh, former policeman, who, uh, through his tough ways and uh, his ability to use violence, really put aside the second generation of the important sound systems and began to dominate the scenes. It's also a time uh, where not only has uh, the West Indian sounds, Jamaican sounds from Buru music and Mento uh, begun to influence the production and, and, and sounds and in the way the Jamaicans were making popular music and evolving their sounds leading into ska in the early 60s. Uh, but it was really a, a, a time where they began to put out their own records, influenced by the success of recordings made of, for example, Mento Music, its release on Smithsonian Records. Uh, the sound systems would begin to record their own sounds Uh, with local singers uh, moving away just from simple R&B, soul, jazz, records uh, type of recordings that had already begun to be influenced and integrate the vibes and uh, influences locally and uh, but also you know sounds from the Dominican Republic, uh, the Calypso sounds and as this sound begins to evolve the ska element is becoming evident in the early 1960s And this is a time at which Lee Scratch Perry begins to integrate the sounds. He moves to Kingston, Jamaica, and like many Clarendonians uh, with no money, uh, basically floor surfs, spending time on the floors of a tailor shop, and uh, attracts the attention of Duke Reed. Uh, And not an errand boy, but uh, he would go and sell records, live records, he would spy on sounds to see what the latest sounds uh, records were, what was a hit with the crowds. And that would became an evident uh, skill that he had was to hear the hits or to be able to spot singers before they were well known and understand what would please a crowd. He would evolve then into uh, beginning to song right because he wanted to sing. And there was very much resistance to his voice and his skills and uh, it would take a bit of time before he could start recording records in 1962, 63, 64, 65, and then uh, began to arrange music, working, among others, with Jackie Mito on arrangements. He would learn how to play the drums, uh, recording on uh, percussion sessions, and then eventually in uh, around 1966 begin producing with Cox and Dodd and uh, the early days of Studio One. So he moves from Duke Reed at a period where he uh, is not being able to record. 
but uh, the kind of cataclysmic event between him and Duke Reed is Lee Perry's reproach that uh, one of his songs, Rough and Tough, will be given without his permission to Stranger Cole and has a bit of success. From the conflict and actual physical fight or beatdown he receives from Duke Reed, he moves over and is taken under the wing of Cox and Dodd, who is an important uh, player and where his role really begins to evolve uh, in these ways that I've just described. He will have a breakup around 1966 with Cox and Dodd as he's beginning to produce and move over to the uh, Joe Gibbs and uh, Prince Buster camps before about 1968, uh, doing independent work and then collaborating with WIRL producers, uh, creating the Upset label and then moving on in around 69 to create the Upsetter label that was so fundamental to the development of reggae music uh, and contributing to its evolution. We're going to try and look around that period that leads up to his own production work, his signature sounds, and that evolution into reggae music. We begin first, though, with that song that created the riff between him and Duke Reed and, and moves him into the Cox and Dodd camp. This is Stranger Cole with Lee Perry's Rough and Tough. Should be mindful of You run for refuge And were rescued That's a fact Then why lie And try to bite The underfeed you Yes, the good you do Lives after you
You're listening to Funky Revolutions with myself, Khalid, on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. Part two of our tribute to Lee Scratch Perry. The early years. His first released uh, recording was in 1963 with Cox and Dodd. And it's there that uh, with this track, first as an acetate played only at the dances and then a very, very popular released uh, in a limited uh, series and ways that uh, he would get the scratch part of his name. It was a dance and he uh, was such a great dancer. He uh, eulogized it in this song, Chicken Scratch. He was called Little Lee and then Chicken Scratch. It was the scratch part that would stick and to the man that we know now as Lee Scratch Perry from 1963, his first uh, release and success.
Otaku, produced by Clement Dodd and uh, or Coxon and Rainford Perry, otherwise known as Lee Scratch Perry. Taku. A couple of more from 1965. A couple of more songs from this period that really shows the evolution and heart of music. And if you go back and, and, and read, for example, Pretty Funny Boy and other histories of Jama uh, Jamaican music in this period in the 1960s that is so fruitful and leads us into reggae music, uh, the ska, the rock steady, so many of these uh, initial musicians were, uh, there was this core of musicians. There was a few recording studios, Federal, WIRL, a couple of others that emerged, that the different competing sound systems and uh, labels uh, that uh, under these sound systems were uh, often in the same uh, studios at different, at crossing over each other. And many of these musicians were fundamental to the recordings themselves, not the entire scene, but you know, 30 or four musicians' names come up, like Tommy McCook or Jackie Mito, among others. And it's fascinating, the collaborations and the continuity over 20, 30 years, how these musicians, for example, the guitarist Ernest Wranglin, coming from rhythm and blues and jazz in the, the 50s right through until classic reggae periods and being part of the upsetters. But they played with various, uh, various collaborators and various permutations. From Taku, we stick to 1965, and we're going to hear, among others, we're going to hear, well, first, a, a track uh, that uh, he performed with the Soulettes, which was actually featured, among others, Rita Marley, a trio that uh, backed him up on By St. Peter. And then we get to see some uh, music also from the same period. And in this time period, I mean, he's working basically with what will become the Scatolites, musicians like Jackie Mito and, and others like that. From there, we go to uh, uh, Roast Duck featuring the Dynamites, again, a pivotal group uh, and whose members would be essential to the various sounds and, and permutations of reggae music early, later on. And then we also get to hear, uh, well, we'll get back to that, a song with, uh, with the Wailers, and uh, Hand to Hand on CKUT 90.3 FM, our tribute to the early years of Lee Scratch Perry. Bye. 
Nord.
hand-to-hand from the Scratch Perry, backed by the Whalers. This period of 1965 is really a Ska's evolution into rock steady. I thought we'd play a couple of more tracks, respectively recorded, all produced by Cox and Dodd, at this period where he's going to become a producer, Lee Scratch Perry, that is, and as he begins to move away from Cox and Dodd. But uh, we'll start with 64, Solid as a Rock, and then a track featuring the gay lads, Run, Rudy, Run. Before we begin talking with Mossman about how this period fits into the evolution of Lee Scratch Perry's career. On CKUT 90.3 FM, this is Funky Revolutions. Thank you. 
that was the beginning of the career uh, of learning the ropes of the industry, of singing, songwriting, arranging, beginning him to learn percussion, found sounds, beginning of mixing. It's all the beginning elements, you know, it's proto-dub. There was dubs being mixed and stuff, but they didn't have echo and reverb. They were maybe only the the mixing board itself being really utilized as the actual, as one of the tools or the effects, you know. So it's the beginning part of that. And and he had a, a really strong hand. A lot of people give credit to his, people Funny Boys wanted to be one of those first reggae songs. And so the, from the very beginning when he started producing stuff on his own, on his own label, experimental. Found sounds, crashing noises, babies crying, you know, the the new type of rhythm, this whole kind of interjection, singing, toasting, all these things all merged together and all layered the arrangement of like four or five guitars, you know, of all this layering of of music and getting the musicians to play the best and most soulful and groovy they possibly could on the tracks. And that kind of Wallace soundy kind of thing was very much there and then just transition into more minimal, minimal, more minimalist, and then back into this whole other new type of kind of wall of sound production, which is much more experimental. You know, using weird phasers and this and that. So it's, he uh, he just loved the process, and he loved to try and make things as as better as they could, and was able to coax that out of the, a lot of the musicians. He wasn't able to specifically say these things he didn't know have any knowledge okay go to uh go into a dissident uh you know go into uh i want you to now to go like uh you know he couldn't explain arranging to songs he could sing it but he couldn't explain it in terminology like okay f minor bridge to c minor then i want a descending you know like a horn line with the crescendo he couldn't do that he didn't have that knowledge to be able to communicate in that respect but in the way that he did know, he did. In the way, you know, he would sing it or he would, you know, communicate in whatever different ways. And sometimes it was just him vibing out. You know, I've spoken to him and sometimes it's just having him in the studio, having fun, dancing around, coming up, just bouncing off ideas. And sometimes that's all it needs, you know, within the process of a studio recording session. You need... It needs to be fun. It needs to be adventure. It needs to be this whole, this energy has to be in this room. And, and Scratch brought that energy for sure. He, he was that kind of guy. Because when you're with someone that loves the creative process and is, loves trying different things, obviously it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to affect the other people in the room, be it singers or musicians and that kind of stuff. And Perry, if there was anything that Perry, I don't think if there was anything more than maybe, I don't know, but one of the, probably the most thing he loved the most was the creative process and living in it, being it, you know, the living art. What was the, talk a little bit about the upsetters, like as conductor, as producer, as well. That would have started in around the late '60s, so that some of these musicians already knew of him from the work he was doing with Joe Gibbs and Coxon and these other studios, kind of working, helping, writing, arranging different little things in there. And then from that point on, him starting his own label, it just grew. And all those original, all those musicians, they were always happy to come and work with him because they knew it was going to be something different. It's going to be fun. It's going to be different. And regardless of 
the money situation, I guess. They just were wanting to have fun and, and be part of that process because they knew going with Scratch that you, it's an adventure. You don't know what's going to happen. You know what song's going to... And by 70, 71, by the early, he's already had a bunch of hit songs. They just knew that he, it, it was something different, very different compared to the, all the other studios in Jamaica. And the, the Black Ark studio, that when, when, would he, when did he burn that down? The first time? 79. 79? Okay. So that golden period of the 70s, mm-hmm. how did he evolve? in that sound because you have all the classic records for Max Romeo and the upsetter it's pretty minimalist in the beginning so in the, in the, you have to think about the 70 to 75 in Jamaica the sound was roots reggae and lovers rock and very much rootsy though kind of stuff um, and quite minimal you know you the sound the big influence of, of that time most uh, was like someone like King Tubby who King Tubby started mixing the vocals of singers and making them lower more mil, uh, minimal and really accentuating the drum and bass and you know catering to the how the sound is going to be in a sound system so how are people are going to listen to this on those big speaker boxes and this and that and by 75 76 scratch had a whole bunch of other hits you know new hits curly locks and a few others coming out of the studio and it was already a buzz already kind of a mystical kind of thing going on like interesting stuff happening and then it just kind of escalated from there now did Jamaicans think it was crazy? yes so from that phase shifted experimental point that stuff wasn't huge in Jamaica Jamaicans there was a few songs that kind of became hits for sure Police and Thieves and um War in the Babylon, you know, there's a handful of songs. For but for most pe- Jamaicans, they were just like, crazy. "What is this weird stuff going on here? What is this fluorescent green milk you want me to drink?" <laughs> is, was that partly the sound or partly the myth of the man who would? Walk it was the sound the itself. Yeah. It was uh, unorthodox, experimental. Uh, it was hard for people to grasp. Uh, even in the rest of the world, for for people that were musicians and engineers, they loved it. For people that have a deep understanding of engineering and mixing and found sounds and all these things, yes, you know, for me, very educational. The people of the two or three engineers that taught me the most without ever actually working with them, but just paying attention and listening to them, scientists, Scratch, and Tubby for sure but that's on the terms of that's coming from somebody that was wanting to and you know study it and learn the pro and learn about it and understand what was going on and how to kind of continue on within that legacy for, for other people for everybody else it's not so much that wasn't really so much a thing um later on it did obviously it did once the 90s came around and jungle and trip hop and all these other kinds of forms of much more experimental beat oriented music up until now, you know, now it's a different scenario. Now people, like, yes, now, you know, now there's, like, yes, he's seen as, like, very, very important, very influential. Um, so um, it's just unfortunate that it took so long because it did contribute to him having a whole mental breakdown and, you know, just 
turning into a wreck because it was just people didn't he didn't get it people outside of jamaica most not that many really knew kind of like they kind of did but it was like people in the world of like heavy metal and rock and like it was just like something very much removed of what he would have liked he would have loved to have like you know continued on in jamaica i'm sure done doing that thing but people just there were just like nah and then there was a it just was like it was as it got weirder more experimental he was just he was getting more underground and more um you know eccentric and people just were like okay this is eccentric's a good word quite eccentric the um like that whole super ape period yes well the super ape that was the element of those island record the major label release and then that's what brought as it got more experimental and stuff it became not commercially viable and that's where the major chris blackwell started refusing that stuff and you know what if you listen to that stuff now you understand why blackwell refused that because it wasn't it wasn't going to sell like hundreds of thousands of units like the other albums that like police and thieves and warren about it wasn't going it you know it was just out there super out there uh and it wasn't just that there's another element of that too there was his wife left leaving him there was like these kind of gangster scammers coming around for protection money and then there was the ultimate breakdown you know it's quite sad is the congos heart of the congos album in which chris blackwell in order to protect bar marley took it was coaching Perry the whole time, listening to the album, got him to remix it a second time, record, you know, trying to get the best thing, you know, and giving the money. I don't know how much he gave him, 40, 50 grand, bought the thing, and then put it on a shelf to not mess with Bob. He didn't want it to compete with Bob Marley. So here is his whole, the magnum opus, this whole thing that led up to his career, his pinnacle album, and the one guy that could bust it big and bring it, to, took it, paid whatever X amount of dollars, put it on the shelf. When, when did it actually finally get out? It came out a year later, so on a GoFeed or whatever, uh, the specials label, you know, those guys, the Scott, UK Scott, two-tone guys help. But, you know, the, Scott, the specials little... Go feed little independent label out of England. That ain't Island Records. That's not Island Records major label release. And you, you say that that was to protect the popularity and market share of Bob, Bob Marley. Marley. Yes. Who, yeah, this who, was, this was he, a, he had worked with the Whalers early on, no? Yes, he had. Uh, he recorded, he helped transition them actually vocally in their sound. He got Peter and Bunny to kind of like do three part harmonies. Got Peter to start doing more baritone, you know, make it beautiful, beautiful stuff. So he'd had a history with them and recorded about 20 songs in the early 70s, and that helped to get the Whalers actually signed. When Chris Blackwell heard those Lee Perry, Bob Marley uh, productions, it convinced Bob, yes, okay, these guys are amazing, we need to sign, and, and that's what happened. Now, um, that was that, you know, that that was in the early 70s and they transitioned into that and became megastars that did not um, affect you know Perry wasn't Perry wasn't a touring vocalist or anything at that point I don't think he did 
he may have not have done a single show as far as I know during the 70s the entire time I don't think he did one live performance so to you know uh, for who he was and the type of artist he was and the way he operated it was just it just didn't that's one not what it was it wasn't, was, it wasn't meant to be and unfortunately it, it led to his kind of mental breakdown you know?
Congos with an alternate mix of Congo Man. That album whose shelving part of the Congos was so destructive to uh, the mind state of Lee Scratch Perry. Our part two today, our tribute to him, the early recordings of Lee Scratch Perry as a singer. Join us next week as we look at the early days of his production from about 1966 to the early 1970s and the establishment of reggae music in Jamaica, his influence and contribution to that evolution from Rocksteady on. I was Khalid on Funky Revolutions, reminding you as usual, free your mind, our collective ass will follow. You need a fight, you better get hop tight, and don't be a square, cause it's warfare.